And now we are starting through in the book of Mark chapter 5. Um, this is going to be a very unique and interesting passage, very unique and interesting story, and I'm excited to explore it with you. Uh, we'll have Sean Burris come up and uh, read the scripture for us. morning. They went across the lake to the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night. Hmm. No No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from the distance, he ran and fell to his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want from me, Jesus? Jesus, son of the most high God. In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in their town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. For those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus, leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Well, that story sort of speaks for itself. It is a wild uh, story about a, um, uh, a man who was under the control of some sort of ominous force. Um, I would start by saying that Anyone who does not believe in demon possession has probably never raised a Um, (laughs) three-year-old. A couple weeks ago, my cousin Daryl and I uh, met down here on the loop after service, and he had his boy Aiden, and I had my boy Jameson, and and we walked up and down the loop, and we went to Meshuga, and we got some coffee and some hot chocolate for the boys, and they had a great time. We went down to the little outdoor theater over here, and the boys did acrobats and 
dance moves and uh, uh, so you think you can dance type things. They were having an awesome time. We were all having an awesome time, laughing, getting along uh, just fine. And then it was time to go. Time to go home and stop the party. Well, Jameson, my three-year-old, did not like that idea. You know how wild animals can sense when a storm is coming? Well, if you're an in-tune father and if you've raised a three-year-old, you kind of sense that a storm cloud is brewing and is about to break. Well, indeed, right after we said goodbye to Daryl and Aiden, and it was time to get Jameson into the car, the storm broke. And Jameson let out a peal uh, uh, of uh, of a scream that almost uh, took the paint off my car. Uh, And he just started to buck and sway, and I tried to get him in his car seat. Mind you, he's 27 pounds, and he's three years old, but I could not physically get the guy into his car seat. Um, (laughs) And it was, of course, at that moment that, you know, my neighbors and some new acquaintances that I met decided to walk by on the Del Mar Loop, and my son is writhing and screaming like the Tasmanian devil, and I'm standing there just going, I I didn't do anything. What do I do? So finally he, and there were about three attempts where I would literally, I just didn't know what to do. I'd finally kind of shut the door and just kind of stand there by the door. And you could hear him screaming through the door. And then I would open the door, try to calm him down. He was clearly out of his mind. Finally, he wore himself out. We got him buckled in. And like, like most three-year-olds do, within just a few minutes, the storm cloud passed. And Jameson started singing "Row, Row, Row Your Boat" and wanted me to sing the, uh, you know, the round with him. And we pull up to the parking. We pull up to our driveway, and he says, "Hey, Dad, can I have a cookie?" And uh, a cookie. <clears throat> uh, so, I, I <laughs> of course, I'm only kidding when I compare the tantrum of a three-year-old to demon possession. But um, actually, I'm only about half kidding. Uh, so. But we, we, we come to this story uh, of, a, uh, of a, what the Bible calls a demon-possessed man. And there are a couple things I want to uh, point out right before we get into the meat of the sermon. But um, uh, one is, I'll just give you a, a brief outline of what we, I, I believe we draw, the principles that we draw from this, from this story. One is that Jesus wants to heal your mind. If you're taking notes, these are the three main points, I think, of this story. Jesus wants to heal your mind. Jesus wants to restore your relationships. And Jesus wants you to share his love with your world. Those are the main three points. Before we get into those, uh, just sort of a commentary. The, as a sophisticated, relatively sophisticated 21st century audience, we hear a story involving demon possession, and we are likely to roll our eyes and scoff and say, oh, that's... Uh, uh, some sort of an anachronistic idea that the first century writers had, but we don't, um, uh, that's a relic of a primitive time that we just don't believe in or we just don't buy. It's a ridiculous notion. Um, we may further argue that the first century author, the author of Mark, uh, probably wrongly attributed um, some sort of psychological ailment to demon possession. Um, while it is true, my, my pushback on that is that while it is true that we, we don't generally witness these types of um, activities 
today, these types of displays, we should be cautious about totally dismissing the idea of, of a personal supernatural evil force. We should be careful about dismissing that outright. Um, if we can conceive of a personal supernatural good, if we can conceive of a god um, uh, that runs the universe, um, then it's not completely irrational to conceive of the possibility that there is also um, some evil in the world, some evil force in the world um, that is um, that is op- uh, opposed to God. So it's not inherently irrational to believe uh, in, in something like uh, a devil or a demon. And while it is true, and by the way, we don't spend a lot of time talking about devils and demons here at U City Family Church, but this passage just pulled, you know, it's, it's all about this. So um, it's, it's fair for us to, to address it. Um, also, the first century writers, while they did not have the type of insight and the scientific knowledge about psychology that we might have today, they were careful to try to distinguish between a physiological or psychological ailment and something more ominous like this, uh, like this activity. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, for example, the writer... Um, clarifies that Jesus healed people. He, he cured people of mental uh, and emotional problems, and he also cast out demons. So they were careful to try to segregate and separate among those types of activities. And as this character is described in this story, this seems, I think, even to the casual reader to be something beyond uh, just a psychological Ailment. This is someone who has this preternatural strength where he can break iron and break uh, chains and that sort of thing. So this is something that is that is uh, worse than and, and different than categorically different than you know uh, some sort of uh, psycho- psychological problem. Some of our brighter scholars have touched on this subject on the existence of evil, and I'm going to um, uh, quote them here, and I think they're in your bulletins as well. In the great C.S. Lewis in the in the opening of the screw tape letters says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Have you ever met somebody like that who like a devil is behind every bush? They don't get a parking space and they think that the devil has, you know, there's, there's that sort of unhealthy interest in them. And then there's the, total disbelief in them. And C.S. Lewis is saying that both are errors. Um, New Testament scholar C.E.B. Cranfield says, says the same thing, basically, more succinctly when he says, the spread of a confident certainty of demons' non-existence has been their greatest triumph. And then, of course, I love the quote uh, by Verbal Kent from the great movie, well, um, it's not great for everyone, I don't recommend it to everyone, but it's a very well-written movie, The Usual Suspects, when Verbal Kent says, that the greatest trick the devil, the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Uh, I love that. Our culture today is deeply materialistic. Uh, so we sometimes find it difficult to grasp the existence of something that we can't physically touch or see or buy or sell. Okay? If, it doesn't, if we don't physically see it, we tend to dismiss it as non-existent. And that might be precisely what the enemy of our soul wants us to do. That might be um, very convenient. And uh, uh, if we don't believe that evil exists, then we may not try too hard to fight it. So that's my, that's my 
argument for why we should at least take this story, we shouldn't dismiss this story outright if, we're, if we are inclined to not believe in, um, in you know, evil. So let's dig into the story. You'll remember the night before this happened, Jesus and his disciples got in a boat and they were heading across the Sea of Galilee. They were heading from the, from the west to the east, probably down to the southeast part of the Sea of Galilee. And if you remember, the, 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 a great storm arose. Jesus was asleep on a pillow in the boat. A great storm arose. The disciples totally freaked out. All of these sailors and fishermen freaked out and called down to the carpenter who was asleep in the bottom of the boat and said, help us. And as you will recall, Jesus got up out of the, out of his sleep and he didn't quote some incantation. He didn't call upon a higher power. If you remember what we talked about a few weeks ago, he simply said to the, to the elements, he said, be quiet, be still. And the storm stopped and the water calmed and the storm went quiet and it stayed quiet. So this happened last night. Okay, this happened last night. These guys didn't get any sleep. These disciples were coming across. They all thought they were going to die. It's the next morning. They're pulling up to the shore. They're still wringing water out of their robes, and they pull up to the shore, and out from the tombs comes this bizarre, crazy, madman. Yeah, this is the area right here uh, um, that is the southeast section of the Sea of Galilee. Um, this is an area called Gadara, and, and this is where um, this story is, is, is likely to have taken place. They pull up here to this shore, and this madman, this crazy person, bleeding naked, comes out of the tombs and calls Jesus by name and says, Jesus, son of the most high God, what do you want from me? We talked several weeks ago about how a lot of times, it's only when the light comes on that we see the darkness, that we see the evil. Remember that? Um, when Jesus shows up in the New Testament, it triggers, you know, these, these sort of evil forces rise up as well. That's when, they, that's when Jesus comes, he's the light, he exposes this, this darkness and evil, and, and that's when we see it. So this man comes uh, screaming out of the tombs, um, and uh, and calling Jesus by name. This is a uh, this is a Gentile region. Okay, this whole area over here. This is not a Jewish region at that time, the first century. This was a Gentile region. Um, and in 1973, archaeologists found uh, the first century Roman tombs. This section right here that was in this th- that are in this area. And this is likely the area where this man lived. He, the, the scripture says that he lived in the tombs and he sort of howled night and day, uh, terrorizing this community. They could not bind him. They could not chain him. They could not keep him under control. And this is where he lived. Um, and then as, we, as the story goes forward, this man comes. He comes screaming to Jesus, what do you want to do with me? Jesus says, what's your name? He's, uh, the, man, I, the man doesn't doesn't have an opportunity to respond because the, the, the force, that the evil that's in him responds and says, we are legion. Legion in the first century was about 6,000 Roman soldiers. I'm not saying there were 6,000 devils in this guy, but the, but the, the idea is there. 
um, that there was a lot of lot of darkness in this guy. And he says, we are legion. And Jesus says, come out of him. Now, what's sort of funny and interesting about this is that the uh, in the in the passage, the de- the, the the demons sort of try to they they, they invoke God's name and say um, they say uh, Jesus asked, "What is your name?" My name is Legion. He replied, "From your winning." And he begged Jesus not to send them into the sea. Um, they basically say uh, they 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 invoke God's name and say, "Leave us alone." So I lo- I sort of loved that part of the passage where the demons actually say, "By God's name." Don't don't cast us out. <laughs> um, so um, even the the devils were sort of relying on God at that point. But anyway, so Jesus says, uh, "I will send you out." And they say, "Please don't send us out of the region." There's, this is a very dense pa- you know passage, and there's a lot going on. We can't drill down on all of it, but it's fascinating. But anyway, they didn't want to be sent out of the of the area, and they didn't want to be destroyed. Um, so they asked to be sent into a herd of swine, a herd of pigs. And Jesus gave them permission, and then the pigs, as the story goes, uh, would you click back, Susan? I'm sorry, just back to that one. Uh, as the story goes, the pigs ran off this incline and went into the sea and drowned. Um, I will get emails about what I'm about to say, um, but, but I'm going to say it anyway. I can't help myself. This was the first um, biblical example of a mass suicide. <laughs> sorry. I, I'm terribly sorry for saying that. Um, is also the first 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 example of a deviled ham in the scripture. So, <clears throat> okay, I apologize. Sorry, Rebecca. Um, so, there are a number of things about this uh, about this story that would have repelled. Besides the bad jokes, there are a number of things in this story that would have repelled a first century audience. Number one. Jesus is proving something here, okay? Jesus is proving something by going into this region and doing this particular act. Number one, he's going into a Gentile region, okay? Uh, He was going into a region where the people were richly unclean. A a good first-century Jewish rabbi would be very careful about having interactions with Gentiles, all right? And Jesus is saying, I'm going straight over there, and I'm going to walk straight into their midst. Number two... Jesus walks not into just a Gentile region. He goes into a region where they raise pigs. Now, if you if you have read anything in, in, in the Bible about how the first how how the Hebrew people felt about pigs, you would know that they did not like them. Okay? They don't they don't touch pigs, they don't eat pig, they don't they want nothing to do with pigs. In fact, when, when somebody wants to tell a story in the New Testament about how bad and deplorable something is, they'll refer to that thing is a pig. Jesus, or the, 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 even um, the, uh, the, the Proverbs will say, don't cast your pearls before swine. In other words, don't, don't put something good in front of something so base and deplorable and gross. Um, in the story of the prodigal son, when Jesus wants to, to, to bring the point home that this kid had reached the absolute bottom of life, he said the, the kid was working among pigs. He was working in the pigsty, and he was eating the, the cobs that, that the pigs used. So every person that originally heard this story uh, or, or knew about this story, it evoked this image in them, and they said Jesus went not only among Gentiles but among pigs? Yes. Number three, he walked into the area where, uh, where the man was living, and that was in the tombs. And death... Um, and uh, 
um, death and, and corpses and that sort of thing. That was also extremely ritually unclean uh, for, for a, a Jewish person to go into that area of the first century and to go among the tombs. You don't do it. You know, and then on top of that, the, you know, the man himself, he's naked, he's screaming, he's bleeding, he's cut himself. Jesus basically is saying and demonstrating to anyone who cares, hey, I'm going to walk right in to the worst parts of life. And I'm going to redeem and restore and fix those things that are the worst and most deplorable and most completely incomprehensibly bad. I can fix that. I can restore that, you know. I think that that is his signaling to us, all of us. It really doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, what you've thought, where you've thought it, what sort of sort of bad things or, or uh, unspeakably, you know, embarrassing and shameful things that you have done or thought or said. Uh, Jesus is not afraid of your mess. All right, Jesus can walk right into your world. And if he can walk into this guy's world with a legion of demons living among the pigs and the swine, Jesus can walk into your world and restore and redeem you. Amen. Um, so, so Jesus does this on, on purpose. He walks into this world on purpose. Another fascinating feature, I think, about this story is that this, this guy had this strength. Okay, He had this strength where he couldn't be bound. Chains couldn't bind him. Irons couldn't bind him. And yet he didn't have the strength to do anything beneficial to himself or his his family or his friends or his community so he had all of this strength but it was all turned against him and that i think is sort of an example of the nature of sin sin can give you strength in certain areas but it always ultimately turns against its host and when we harbor sin in our hearts or when we put something in our hearts that is in front of the lord in front of god it ultimately enslaves and controls us Okay, if we put um, a relationship, uh, if we put a career, if we put an image, if we put our status, we have a grudge, we put anything before God, that ultimately will control and enslave us. Okay, Um, and for example, the person who seeks power is ultimately controlled by their desire for power. Okay, a person who seeks wealth is controlled by that pursuit to the detriment of their family and so forth. Um, a person who seeks t- uh, to uh, acceptance is ultimately controlled by those people he wants to please, he or she wants to please. So it's a great Bob Dylan lyric, great Bob Dylan song that says, you got to serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. You're going to serve somebody, and you serve whatever it is that you put in prominence in your heart. Um, here's the good news, however. Jesus wants to restore you and help reclaim your life. That's what this story teaches us. He does it three ways in this story. Number one, Jesus wants to, res- wants to heal your mind. He wants to heal your mind. In the passage, um, as you'll recall, when the, the townsfolk, the other the herders, the pig herders that saw this thing happen, they ran off to town. And when they came back, the scripture says that the man was sitting there, fully clothed and in his right mind. Jesus wanted to heal his mind. Um, have you ever have, have you ever not been completely in your right mind? I mean, have you ever have you ever not been? You ever you know even say, man, I'm not I'm not in my right mind right now. My cousin tried to climb Mount Rainier, and he did twice. My cousin Alan and he he experienced altitude sickness, a very serious form of altitude sickness, 
to, to the extent where he was having visual hallucinations, he was thinking thoughts that were absolutely nonsensical, and he, he would have died up on that mountain if it weren't for the other climbers that brought him down because he didn't have the, he didn't have the good sense to even come down off the mountain at that point because he was not in his right mind. There are, um, uh, there are uh, uh, psychologists call these sort of irrational or exaggerated thoughts. They call them uh, cognitive distortions. And I, <laughs> I love these as I was, as I was researching this because I, I think I've had all of them at some point, you know, to some degree, and we probably all have. One, they say, is the all or nothing thinking. They call this splitting. This is when you think of everything in terms of always, never. It's very black and white. Everything is very emphatic. Um, for example, if you're a straight A student and then you get a B and you say, I'm nothing, I'm a zero. Law school, law school exams just ended. <laughs> there are a few law students that are squirming right now in their seats. You're not a zero, okay? <laughs> um, all or nothing thinking, you know, is that idea of when one bad thing happens, you say, man, I'm a total failure. I'm a total failure. And that's, that's a cognitive distortion. You're not a total failure. You got to be. Big deal. You know, you put it in the big context, and it's not that, not that big of a deal. Um, another one of these cognitive distortions is a mental, they call it a mental filter. And uh, this, is, this is when you filter out the good things and you only focus on the bad things. Have you ever done that? You know, you, you, meet, you meet, you talk to 10 people, they're all really nice, and then you talk to one of your friends who is distracted or doesn't tell you or doesn't look at you the way you're used to or somehow they rub you the wrong way and suddenly you go, that person hates me. That person absolutely despises me. Well, no, the person maybe had to go to the bathroom or maybe they had to, you know, maybe they were in a hurry. They just didn't, they didn't talk. But you filter out all of the good interactions and you only, that's called a mental filter. Um, I like this, this one. This is similar. Disqualifying the positive where something actually positive happens, but you disqualify it. So you, you, you know, you're at work. You get a good review. Your boss says, hey, great job. And then you go back to your spouse and you say, yeah, they, you know, I, I'm not doing well. And the, the spouse says, well, what did the boss say? Well, the boss said that I'm doing well, but I know that he's just saying that to make me feel good. There's no way that, you know. So you, disqual you totally disqualify the positive. Anybody ever done any of these things? No? Just me? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, magnification minimization. This is making a mountain out of a molehill. Um, we exaggerate. We a lot of times do this with other people. We, we magnify their attributes and say, well, they are just so fantastic. Their life is so amazing and incredible, and my life is so lousy and bad and lame. You know, that's magnifying and minimizing. These are all these cognitive distortions, um, and there are more. I, I won't keep going down. These obviously are not sort of the types of things that we're dealing with, but they are things, uh, the, the types of things that the man in our story was dealing with. His, his was much, much worse. But I think this is sort of an example of the kinds of things that God wants, uh, wants to heal in our own minds. Let me give you just a few scriptures to illustrate how important the Bible uh, holds the mind, the life of the mind. Philippians 2.5 says, Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Proverbs 23.7 says, Whatsoever a man thinketh, so is he. Second uh, Timothy uh, 1.7 says, For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Colossians 3.1.3 says, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for, uh, for, for you... Um, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for your life before is now hidden uh, in Christ. So, obviously, the biblical writers have a strong emphasis on on the mind and on what's going on inside of your mind. And and Jesus wants to heal that mind. And how, how do we do that? How do we allow the Lord to come in and heal our minds? Number one is prayer. We pray to God. We allow God into our hearts. We open up our hearts to God and allow him to reorient our minds so that we understand that we understand our sort of place in the universe. All right. And, and we'll talk about that at some point. But but God is God is our Lord. God is our is the head. He's got to be number one. He's got to be the absolute number one priority in our life. And w- just doing that will help to reorient your life and your mind um, uh, very in, in, a, in a very well structured way, scripture, and we'll 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 talk more about it. But just reading the scripture, learning more about God, and trying to to um, find out who you are in Christ, what Christ, you know, you are a beloved creature. In, you are a be, you are a beloved creature in Christ's eyes. You know, just knowing who you are in God is is extremely helpful uh, in, in healing your mind. Um, good company, wise counsel. There are a number of things you can do. And, and also setting your mind on good things. Um, the scripture says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. A lot of times we allow our minds to go into, you know, the dark stuff. We allow, we start thinking about things that bring us down. We start thinking about things that are um, ultimately detrimental to our life and our spiritual life. Rebecca and I have started this year. We're doing it every day because we've only, we've only, what, what is today, the eighth? Okay, we've done it for eight days. Uh, we are starting every, to start every morning with a prayer of thanksgiving. And we close every night with a prayer of thanksgiving. Now, I'm a morning person, so I say the morning prayer. <laughs> And uh, I think Rebecca hears me. Do you hear me when I pray? Uh, and she's a night person, so she she prays the night prayer, and 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 I I know, I sort of nod in acknowledgement as as the slobber comes out of my mouth onto the pillow. But but we just want to orient our minds into an attitude of thanksgiving towards God, and to help you know just to to think on those things that are good. It's very easy to dwell on the things that we want and that we need and that we strive for and we hope for and we desire. But if we'll take a moment to just praise God and thank God for those things that we already have, those blessings that he's already bestowed upon us, that will help to restore that mind and, and, and bring a balance and a happiness and a deep, deep abiding joy into your life. Number two, Jesus wants to restore your relationships. I'm going to tell you a quick story. Um, and my, my mother and father-in-law told me that I could tell this story. But I got the story from my mother-in-law, so some of the facts you know, may be questionable according to my father-in-law. So you've got to, you have to work that out with them. Um, but, but Phil and Rita were young sort of post hippies in the early mid seventies. Okay. They, they lived out in California. They're both from Detroit, but they were young and they were partiers and they were, they did not, they were not Christians. They were not people who followed Jesus. They were not 
you know, they weren't striving for that, you know, that, that, that holy, holy standard in their life. Uh, they were partying. Now, Rebecca, you can always correct me if I get anything wrong here. But they were, they were partying. They were doing, the, you know, Phil, I think especially, according to Rita, was all Phil. Uh, no, he was drinking a lot. He was doing drugs. And it just, they, they th- to give you an example of the, of the kind of um, sacredness that they, in which they held their relationship, they got married at halftime during the Super Bowl. Um, they, they actually called. They were, they were watching TV and drinking beer with some friends. I don't know if they even arranged it in advance, but somehow they found that this guy was a preacher. So during halftime, they went to this guy's house. He married him. The ring that Phil put on Rita's finger was a cigar band, one of those paper cigar bands that you come off the cigar. So, you know, these, these are not folks that were, you know, they were, not, they were not taking this whole thing very seriously. Um, and when you don't tend the garden, the garden goes south, you know. And so their relationship was on the rocks very early on. They had uh, their first son, Philip, and when Philip was about six months old, I think their pit, their relationship had reached this state where they just didn't they just didn't want to be around each other anymore. And Phil bought Rita a one way plane ticket to Detroit, Michigan. Okay, now when somebody buys you a one way uh, plane ticket, especially if it's a spouse. That's a bad sign. That is a very bad sign. Bought, bought, him a one way, bought her a one-way plane ticket, sent her off to Detroit. So Phil now is like living the bachelor life. He can party and nobody's there to nag him and bother him. Um, but he was incredibly lonely and he felt terrible. And uh, apparently he, um, I don't know what kind of drugs they were doing in the 70s, but he was doing something that, that uh, was very bad for him. And apparently was in the shower and couldn't feel couldn't feel his body in the shower. Um, that's another bad sign. There are a number of number of clues that your life is not going the right direction here. So so Phil and Rita they lived in an apartment complex, one of these apartment complexes where you can hear somebody. You know, if they scratch their if they scratch their head in the next apartment, you can hear it. Have you ever you know been I you know where you have those real thin walls? And apparently there were some people that lived downstairs there were Christians and that prayed and, and Phil and Rita, when they both lived in the apartment, they could hear him down there praying. So Phil said, look, I have nothing to lose. So he goes down and he goes down to these folks that are praying that were, were Christians. And he goes, look, I, I'm not part of your religion. I'm not, I have nothing to do with it, but, but I need some help. Can you guys help me out? I'm, my life is not going well. They said, yes. They said, look, why don't you come with us to church? Uh, and we'll pray with you and we'll try to, you know, we'll try to try to help you out. Phil went to church with him and opened up his life to God. Uh, three days later, he called Rita and said, Rita, I want you to come back. Rita, the way Rita tells it, he told her, you know, he was telling her, I'm a Christian now, and I'm a, you know, I believe in God and I believe in this and that. And he was going on and on. Rebecca, or uh, Rita, sorry. Rita said uh, uh, she thought he was drunk, and so she hung up on him. She said, you know, I've never heard you talk this way. Hung up on him. Anyway, he called back got her a ticket back. They came back uh, and they started to dedicate their lives to God. They opened up their hearts to God. God, you know, wasn't, wasn't perfect immediately, but over the years, God helped to restore that relationship. They've been married 35 years. Uh, you know, I have a particular interest in their relationship because if they had not gotten back together, then my wife would have never been born and I would be a very lonely guy up here talking to you right now. Um, so God restores relationships. 
when you really allow the principles of God into your heart, you know, and you start to love somebody the way you're supposed to love someone, the way Jesus teaches us to love someone, you will restore relationships. Let me just say this on, on the love on the love angle. Jesus commands us to love. Okay? This is interesting. Jesus does not command us to feel love. Okay? Jesus doesn't say, feel love for your neighbor as you feel love for yourself. Jesus uses the active verb of love. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, love your enemy as yourself. He commands us to do something, to love with an active love. And I think that in a lot of relationships, that's the part that we've got to, that's the part that we've got to get a hold of. Because a lot of folks today in a relationship will say, well, I just don't feel, I just don't feel it for the person anymore. Well, that's understandable, but, but again, that's not your responsibility to feel something. Your responsibility is to love. How do we do that? I was just, uh, even though it's sort of a, I don't know if it's a corny book, but it's, it's kind of corny, but it, it's got some enough truth in it that I gotta, I gotta, I gotta say it. Is this, uh, has anyone read Gary Chapman's five love languages or ever heard of that? Okay. It's just, it's kind of true, even though you don't, you know, it's kind of corny, but it's, it's really kind of true. Um, there are different ways that people feel loved. And so our responsibility, if we are in a relationship or with our spouse, is to figure out what that is and to do that thing. Uh, the, the five love languages uh, in Chapman's book are words of affirmation. Some people just like to hear, hey, I love you. I love you. You're beautiful. You know, or if a wife is saying it, you're handsome. You know, you're strong. You're a hard worker. I, you know, whatever it is, words of affirmation. Number two is quality time. Some, some folks just want, they just want to be near you or you just want to be near them. And that makes you feel loved. You know, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. You just have to be there. Just your physical presence demonstrates your love. Um, receiving gifts. Some folks are gift people. Okay, Rebecca's a gift person, you know. <laughs> I mean, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be elaborate. I can, I, can, I can pluck a flower on the way home and walk in the door with it, and she'll go, oh, you thought of me. You love me, you know. Uh, uh, gifts, receiving gifts, acts of service. You know, doing something for somebody. And, and physical touch is another one. Some people just feel loved when you put your arm around them, you know. Or when you, you know, pat them on the back or give them a hug or whatever. It's just, you know, people feel loved and, and Jesus commands us to love uh, one another. He says, by, all, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. Uh, so Jesus wants to restore our relationships and this is how he does it. He commands us to love. He commands us to love and to give love and to demonstrate our love to others. And finally, number three. Um, oh, in the story, I, I wanted to just say that in the, in the story, Jesus commands the man. When, when the man says, hey, I want to come with you. I want to come with you. Um, he's calm now. He's in his right mind. He's, Jesus says, no, go back to your friends and family. Go back to your former colleagues and your former coworkers. Go be with them. You know, he wants to restore those relationships. Can you imagine this poor man who has been running amok in the hillside, in the countryside for all this time in this sort of bizarre state of possession and, and, and this crazy 
crazy life that he's living. Can you imagine what it must have been like for him to go back to his mom and dad, fully dressed, clean, you know, for the first time, just whole, you know, his integrity is back in place. And his friends must have just said, wow. I mean, Jesus wanted to restore him to his community, wanted to restore him back to his people. Um, Interestingly, I will just say this. Remember in the passage, this struck me as very curious, but in the passage, the the other herders, the people who were there and witnessed the demons going into the pigs and running off into the water, they didn't say, hey, let's keep this Jesus around to help us. They said, Jesus, would you please leave and go somewhere else? You know, what's fascinating is these these were the guys who owned the pigs, okay? They just lost 2,000 pigs, okay? That's that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money to a, to a first century pig herder, okay? And what the, it's interesting, and it's I think that it's poignant to note that their interest was not in the ultimate health restoration and reconciliation of this man. Their interest was, I don't want to lose any more pigs. If Jesus is going to come casting demons into pigs, we don't want them around here. So they had an interest that was not, their, their interest was in their wealth above the health of this man. So they wanted Jesus out of here. And Jesus said, fine, I'll leave. And he left. Um, and the final thing that Jesus did in this story and, and Jesus wants from us is that Jesus wants us to share his love with our world. As I just mentioned, when the man said, can I come with you? Can I come and be a part of your crew? Jesus said, no. Go back to your friends and family. Go back into your community and just tell them what the Lord has done for you. Let them know the kind of mercy that the Lord has had on you. That's what Jesus wants from us. Now, you know, I, I, some of us have, have, have had experiences in church. I mean, I know I did when I was a kid. You know, there was a sort of a strong evangelistic push. And, and, you know, when I was like 10 or 11, they wanted you to go hand out tracts and knock on doors. And, you know, that's not really, I mean, that, there's, there's a, there's, there might be a place for that. But what Jesus is saying is, go share the, my love, what you've experienced from me, what you felt from me. Go share that with your friends and family out of gratitude. You know, just go express that to them. Just let them know how much I love you and the kind of mercy that I've had on your life. Go let them know. And uh, the man did that, and the story says that the people marveled. The people were amazed and, and um, were fascinated to know what was going on in this guy's life. Um, Jesus just wants you to share what he's done in, in, in your life with other people. And you don't have to go and be some kind of crazy zealot. You don't have to have a megaphone and walk up and down the street. You don't have to have a, you know, a sandwich board on the front and back, you know, uh, with repent, you know, turn or burn or whatever it says. You know, you don't have to. Do, <laughs> he's not asking that kind of thing from you. He's asking for you to go and simply share your love, the, the love that he's given you with with others. So those are. Uh, those are the three basic principles from the story. I want to close with this thought. What is fascinating is that, you know, at the end of this particular story, this man who was alone, terrified, bleeding, and naked is healed, restored, calm, and clothed, and in his right mind. Now watch this. At the end of the book of Mark, Now, I'm going to get emotional, but at the end of the book of Mark, it's Jesus who is naked and bleeding and almost out of his mind. 
on the cross for us. You see, Jesus ultimately steps in to our place. Jesus ultimately becomes that sin so that we can be free. That is the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is not do good and be right and follow these ten rules and everything's going to be great. No, the story of the gospel is God sent his son to earth to die for you, to be mortified for you, to, um, to suffer sin in your place, to be ashamed and broken in your place so that you could be whole and healed and right. Amen? Amen. So I would just encourage you today, give your heart to God. You know, give your heart to God. Let him start to follow Jesus. You know, let him heal you. Let him restore those relationships. And at the end of the day, go out and give and and share his love with the people in your world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this, this, this exciting and strange story of this man who was tormented and who was ultimately healed and restored to his right mind. We thank you that, you know, you can come into our world, into our lives, even today, and restore us, heal us, and make us whole. We are so grateful that you are not expecting us to be perfect. We're not, you're not expecting us to, to, uh, to come to you with everything right, but you're, you, you're not afraid to step into our mess and our darkness and the, the parts of our lives that are not beautiful and to change them. And ultimately, Lord, we thank you so much for the sacrifice that you made for us, the sacrifice that you made on the cross for us. You died for our sins that we might be whole and we might be free, that we might be strong and that we might be able to reach out and restore others and reclaim our lives. We are so deeply grateful for that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So 